You're listening to Rowan Radio On Demand. Download more podcasts at rowanradio.com. The following program does not represent the views or opinions of the staff or administration of Rowan University or Rowan Radio. 89.7 WGLS-FM. Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM proudly presents Career Talk, a monthly program featuring information on career and academic planning sponsored by the Rowan University Office of Career Advancement. And now, here's your host, the Assistant Director of the Office of Career Advancement, Reuben Britt. Carter G. Woodson, the father of black history, once said, real education means to inspire people, to live more abundantly, to learn to begin with life as, you, as they find it and make it better. Our guest today reflects that quote because she has truly been an inspiration to so many people as an educator and as an advocate for history. Joining us today is historian, author, educator, and speaker, Dr. Kelly Carter Jackson. Dr. Carter Jackson, welcome to Career Talk. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Can you tell our listeners about your professional background? Yeah, sure. So, um, I went to the best school in the whole wide world. I went to Howard University for for undergrad. And well, I'm, I'm a graduate of Southern, so we may big uh, different here. But, but yes, it's a great school, but it's definitely a great school. We, were, we both went to HBCU, so yes. it's HBCU love. Um, and I pursued a degree actually in, in journalism. And then towards the end of my undergraduate experience, I realized, man, I really love telling stories, but I love the past. And so I decided to go to graduate school. I went to Columbia University. I studied under, you know, Eric Foner and Manny Mirable and Barbara Field, some really prominent um, historians in my field who just taught me about what it means to be a scholar activist, to not just write books, but to write books that really change the field and change the world. Um, and then shortly after I got my PhD, I started uh, doing a few postdocs, and then I finally landed a tenure track position, first at Hunter College, and now I'm at Wellesley College, and I teach in the Department of Africana Studies, uh, but I'm their in-house historian. So I do all of the sort of history classes that relate to the Black experience in the United States. Um, and particularly, I look at the abolitionists and the 19th century and slavery and the Civil War. Um, but really, I mean, I'm always talking about the lived experiences of black people. And so um, so sometimes my, my expertise can extend a little bit further beyond that. But, um, yeah, I write books and I podcast and I speak and I teach and I wear 10,000 hats. Yeah, we're going <laughs> to um, yes. yeah. <laughs> talk about that. Yes. Yeah. We're going to talk about that. Now, as uh, one of the things about uh, the college experiences is that um, students are often have the opportunity to to do a some type of field experience or internship, and it enables them to what I say is uh, uh, test their hypothesis. As a mm-hmm. college student, mm-hmm. were you able to uh, participate in it, in an internship? Yeah, I did something a little different. I did the Ronald McNair program. Okay. Um, the Ronald McNair Scholars Program is nationwide. Some people are familiar with the McNair program named after the astronaut. Mm-hmm. Or um, like Mellon Mays is another one of those programs where they take students 
um, marginalized or un- underrepresented groups and they connect them with the mentor and they help them do research and they get to go in the archive for the first time and they present their research at conferences all all while in their undergraduate experience so that by the time you get to graduate school, you can say, yes, I've been to the archive, I've conducted research, I've had a mentor, I've published um, or I've presented my research. And it was... it was a game changer for me. I mean, being a McNair scholar was transformative. Um, and I don't think I would have been able to be a historian or at least a historian of the caliber that I was aspiring to had I not done the Ronald McNair program. Yeah, because I was going to ask you, when did you realize that you wanted to be a historian and an educator? You know, and- Oh, man, that, that started in childhood. <laughs> so, <laughs> when I was young, uh, my mom got her Ph.D. at age 40. And so I remember when she got her Ph.D., we threw a huge party for her. It was a big deal because, you know, my grandmother only had an eighth grade education. Mm-hmm. And so for my mom to have her Ph.D. was extraordinary. And so at the time, as a child, maybe eight, I didn't know what a PhD was, but I was like, oh, you get a party? Okay, great. (laughs) I thought this is what I wanted, but my mom started introducing me to um, children's historical literature at a young age. So I read books like by Mildred D. Taylor, like Roll of Thunder, Hear My Cry, and Let the Circle Be Unbroken. And I was a huge fan of the American Girl doll Addie and all of the stories that Addie had, Addie Saves the Day. Um, And I just loved the, so funny, as a child, I was drawn to the institution of slavery. I was drawn to these stories about little girls who triumphed or overcame or rescued people. The story of Harriet Tubman, I was enthralled. So I didn't know necessarily that I was going to be a historian. I don't think I had the language or the, uh, the notion of what that was. But I knew I was going to write. I knew I was going to tell stories. And I knew it was going to have to do something with the past. And so what started out thinking, okay, maybe this might be journalism, quickly <laughs> turned into history for me. And, and I've not stopped since then. It's interesting that you, you talked about your, your grandmother, uh, and as lo- along with your mother, um, my father only had a ninth grade education, but I was, um, mm-hmm. I was truly blessed because he was really, he knew a lot about black history and, mm-hmm. and he had these books that you, know, you, you normally don't see in, in, uh, mainstream, uh, bookstores. And, mm-hmm. um, he would every now and then drop little nuggets on me, even though I was like a child, but it was you know, so when you 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 talked about uh, Black history and 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 when I I reflect on it, I talk about my father's um, influence in terms of me learning yeah. so much about Black history, and he gave me an assignment. He gave me the autobiography of Malcolm X, and yeah. I, I I was surprised to to find out that he lived right around the corner from me because I'm I'm originally from Boston. Wow. I'm from Roxbury, so he lived oh, right. Yes, a, yes, yes. <laughs> so. Wow. Uh, yeah. So, um, and I, when I. That's so special. Yes. Because I, I sit on the, I'm a board member for the Massachusetts Historical Commission. And just a couple years ago, you know, we helped to get 
Malcolm X's house to become a historical, you know, designated place where people can not only go and visit, but also to help that um, place get fun so that it stays preserved and so that people who want to walk by the house will know who lived there and why this house mattered. And so, um, stuff like that is so important because oftentimes we live in close proximity to to history and yet we don't often realize just how significant that is. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I was stunned. There's a Dale street. I, I live on Laurel street, which is right around the corner. And, um, you That's know, wild. Yeah, and the church, uh, Elliot church was, is where I, um, uh, that's another story where I first learned how to play basketball. But anyways, um, you <laughs> talked about sitting on the boards. You you you, um, you are involved in a number of, 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 of boards. Uh, uh, can you shed some light on those? Yeah. So um, I just, as I just mentioned, I sit on the Massachusetts Historical Commission. And what we do is, is really statewide. It is anytime someone throughout the state of Massachusetts or the Commonwealth wants to, you know, preserve um, a historical site, wants to get funding for a historical site or change a historical site. Mm-hmm. Uh, I am part of the board that, that votes yay or nay on that. Most of the times I can tell you we vote yay. We're very, very progressive and we really want to preserve these special places that sometimes have um, either precarious funding or, you know, precarious circumstances in their environment. The buildings have become dilapidated or are falling apart so it feels really good to work on that side i'm also a historian residence for the museum of african-american history in boston and so me and my colleague carrie greenwich dr carrie greenwich at tufts we do a lot of the programming for the museum of african-american history we speak we give lectures we help curate exhibits um and we pretty much make the museum accessible to the public you know we don't oftentimes we think of like archives and these like really historically rich sources they're not accessible to the public the public can't really understand what it is that they're seeing or walking by and so we really do the work of trying to make it plain as Malcolm X said make it plain and make it so that people can grapple with this history and that it will have meaning for them in their everyday lives you know, as you know, probably too well, Boston is such a historical city. I mean, the abolitionist movement had really their boom there. Mm-hmm. You think of the civil rights movement there and civil rights activists. I think it's people like William Monroe Trotter, who, you know, wrote black newspapers there. There's such a wealth of information. And we really want to get that out to the public. You know, it doesn't have as much meaning if it only stays siloed among the elite or among intellectuals. And so my goal has always been about, you know, making sure that the public and especially African-American people know their history. Now you said that you you sit on the board of the Massachusetts historical society. Were they involved with the unveiling of, or the, uh, the construction of the uh, new King Memorial on the Boston Commons? No, no, they weren't. They were, that was a different, uh, that was a different commission, but, um, the, there's an actual organization uh, that worked with um, this huge art project that Hank Willis Thomas put together called Embrace, King Embrace. And it was all about having that monument on the common, the Boston Common, which is like, you know, our central park of Boston, basically. Right. Um, and I didn't work with that. I know a lot of people who were involved in it, though. Um, and yeah, you know, it's, it's an interesting statue, to say the least. But I love art. I've always been a huge fan of art. And so I get it. I appreciate it. 
Yeah, I'm I'm uh, a lover of art, and and uh, matter of fact, Paul Goodnight is a real good friend of mine, mm, uh, and mm. who's uh, done a lot of different pictures, and his a lot of his work has been in the background of a lot of movies and TV shows. Uh, uh, you can see his one of his pictures on uh, the wall and on the. Uh, TV show, The Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, when you go from the living oh, room to wow. the kitchen. That's um, so cool. Yeah, so, you know, he's, he, that was during his earlier days when, you know, they were just putting it up. Now he, he charges because he's become more well Oh, gosh, I know. Now. You should have got it early. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> With a lot of these artists, you got to get it early. Otherwise, you know, it's much as paying for a house. You're right. Now, um, one of the major f- flaws in public education in this country is this ongoing of omission of black history in the curriculum. What steps mm-hmm. need to be taken to decolonize public education and make it multicultural and more inclusive? Mm, that is such a good question. This is something that I talk about all the time. And normally on the first day of class, I talk about the, what I call the three V's. The three V's are our voice, volume and value. Mm -hmm. And when I think about voice, it is how do we get more voices of black people, of women, of marginalized people up on stage at the mic. And then once we get their voices, how do we amplify those voices? How do we give them volume? How do we make it so that everyone can hear what these people are saying? And then then once we've heard them, how do we give that value? How do we let people know like what they are saying is meaningful, it matters, it has implications for how we understand the world that we live in. And so, you know, in my own classroom, I'm always incorporating new voices, new people, trying to give my students really a multitude or a diversity and a range of historical actors who've contributed to American society and culture. I want my students to understand that You know, it's not just, I talk about this all the time, like one great black man and one great black woman per century. We we are much bigger than that. But, you know, in the 18th century, we just get Christmas addicts and we get Phyllis Wheatley, and that's sort of it. It's the one great black man, one great black woman. In the 19th century, you know, it's Frederick Douglass and it's Harriet Tubman. And that's kind of it. And even in the 20th century, it's like Rosa Parks and MLK. And we get these very narrow, simple, single stories of black history. And they're nowhere near complete. Even the people that we think we know, we have not exhausted in who they are in terms of their contributions and their identity. And so I really feel like there needs to be a push to be much more inclusive, to get all of these stories as much as possible into the classroom, to really dissect textbooks. You know, I stopped using textbooks a long time ago because I realized that, you know, they're incredibly problematic. You know, I had a a textbook, I was teaching Western Civ at um, another university, and the textbook had two chapters dedicated to the history of Christianity. And then it had two paragraphs dedicated to the history of Islam. And I was like, wait a second. Wow. <laughs> I thought these these religions are both old. How do you get two chapters for Christianity and two paragraphs on Islam? That's political. That's not a mistake. That doesn't just happen. That when we think about what gets told, who gets emphasis, who gets put at the center, who gets placed at the margins, who gets two chapters and who gets two paragraphs, someone is at a table deciding that. 
And so we have to be in those spaces in which those decisions are being made. Um, And it's incredibly hard work. I think if nothing else, the South has showed us how important history is. Because they know that when this information is put into the classroom and it's put into the textbooks or it's a part of an AP course, that there are real implications for how we have to grapple with that history. And if we can keep that history out of the table or out of the classroom, then we don't have to, then it doesn't have meaning anymore. And we don't have to be responsible for it anymore. Um, and so it's a real battle. It is a real struggle to have black history matter outside of, you know, black history month and like hashtags and, you know, sort of more superficial, um, um, versions of how we get this history out there. It has to be baked into the system. And one of the ways you do that is by having a robust curriculum that doesn't just center the stories of black people, but the stories of indigenous people, the stories of Asian Americans and Latino Americans. Like that matters deeply. The story of disabled Americans showing people of all abilities, being able to contribute to what makes America, America so important. So I also think that, you know, we make it too much about a black and white binary when, you know, how much Asian American history are we getting? How much Native American history are we getting? How much Latino American history are we getting? Um, Everyone has contributed something and everyone needs to be at the table when we talk about what makes our country um, so great or what makes our country so in need of improvement. Yeah, well, um, one of my coworkers, uh, she teaches a uh, Black Lives Matter class uh, here at mm. Rowan University, and um, I was one of uh, her, her uh, guest speakers um, at her class, and I'll tell you about that later on, but I was one mm-hmm. of the guest speakers, and we were talking about what, uh, basically what you just said, uh, including indigenous people, and there was an mm-hmm. older gentleman in the class, he's probably... It might might have been in his 80s or late 70s. Mm, And mm. um, I was telling him the story about Geronimo, how he was being chased by the the cavalry and um, he was on his horse and they were gaining on him. And he 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 um, he jumped off the cliff with his horse and said, Geronimo. And he got away later on. They eventually caught him. But. He got away and the I said and I was talking about how the paratroopers, when they stormed into Normandy and were jumping out of the planes, mm. they were saying Geronimo, but they never knew the origin of it, mm. you know, and wow. um, and he wow. said he happened to say, well, I was a paratrooper. And when we would jump out the planes, we would say Geronimo. And he said, I never knew where it came from. I just thought it was just, mm. you know, so it, it's interesting to. Um, yeah. You know, to learn about not only uh, black history, but indigenous people as well. Uh, Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. There's a lot of things that we do and benefit from. And we have no idea. (laughs) We have no idea who created that infrastructure. We have no idea who came up with that idea. You know, I I was just on a podcast maybe a week or so ago. We were talking about uh, free lunches and and free school breakfast. Right. 
and how the Black Panther Party That's right. had free breakfast for children and, and also lunch and dinner. We talk about the breakfast program, but they provide meals for the entire community. That's right. And how the Panthers were feeding more people than the federal government was because these chapters were all across the country. And how we don't realize that the framework for what it means to have a free meal, a good meal, a balanced meal comes from the Black Panther Party, that the free lunch that my son and daughter eat at their school, uh, that's now free across the state, regardless of your socioeconomic status, because at one time it was sort of relegated to people who were poor, but now it doesn't matter what how much money your parents make. If you need to eat, you will get a free meal on the state. That comes from the Black Panther Party and Black organizing. And, you know, that's something that we do and we sort of take for granted the idea of a free meal. Um, but that's activist work. That's it's right. activist work. Now, what what was the biggest uh, uh, challenges that you faced when you were pursuing a career as a historian and writer? Mm. Mm. Man, I think a lot. <laughs> there's, a lot. <laughs> there's a lot. I think that it, when I, and it still is difficult, I think being a black woman historian unique position you know for a long time I was in a field that was dominated and still in some ways is dominated by white men when you think about who studies the civil war who studies slavery for a long time it was not someone who looked like me Mm -hmm. and so being able to not only write in a field that was not dominated by people of color but also to write on topics that were not considered popular. You know, I write on violence. I look at political violence. I look at force and not just um, its pitfalls. Specifically, I look at its efficacy. Like how, how has force worked? How has violence actually been effective in overthrowing institutions like slavery um, or systemic racism? And so that was not something that was supported I would say early on, you know, that my predecessors, people that I think were writing books before me about similar topics, they did not get awards. They did not get a lot of praise. They found a hard time finding publishers for their book. Now, I think we have much more of an appetite to talk about violence and force because we understand like, whoa, we we better get a grip on this. So we're going to keep repeating these, you know, things. Uh, But that was a real challenge feeling like I could tell these stories without people saying she's navigating violence you know right, like right. um if you don't want it's very easy I think to write something nowadays and have you know the right to get a pull quote and you know blow something up that really is much more nuanced than um than just a one-liner but yeah it's a real it's still a challenge to get sources it's still a challenge to pull out black voices in the archive when so much has been written from the perspective of white people or white planters or those in power you really have to use a lot of alternative tools to lift out those voices and amplify those voices um but I'm grateful because more and more people are doing this work and it's making it easier for those who are coming, you know, ahead of us. And I hope that the challenges will be uh, smaller and smaller and smaller with each generation of stories that comes out, that we're ready to sort of take on these new hard histories um, and to give them all the support they need to be heard and amplified and valued. Thank you. 
You're listening to an evening. You're listening to Career Talk. I'm your host, Ruben Britt. We're joined today by Dr. Kelly Carter Jackson. She's been sharing a lot of good information about her career. We're going to hear more from Dr. Kelly uh, Carter Jackson in just a minute. So stay with us. Welcome back to Career Talk. We're here today with Dr. Kelly Carter Jackson. Uh, she is a historian, author, educator, and and speaker. Now, uh, one of the things I want to ask you is that you have a book out, and mm-hmm. um, and it's entitled "Force and Freedom: Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence." What inspired mm-hmm. you to write the book? Oh man, so. I did a project in my senior year at Howard on John Brown. John Brown, who is a famous white abolitionist who um, basically tried to lead a a slave revolt to get enslaved people um, to escape the plantations and and head to freedom. And his rebellion fails. Uh, But what I wanted to know was like, one, how does he come about this project and how does he think that violence will work? And, Mm -hmm. you know, what are the sort of the strategies that he employed? And I realized that John Brown was so deeply inspired by black leadership. He looked at black abolitionists the founders of the movement, because they were the founders of the movement. He looked at people like Toussaint Louverture and Jean-Jacques Dessalines, leaders in the Haitian Revolution, and he valued their brilliance, their genius, and their ability to really articulate what freedom and liberation should look like. And so instead of looking at John Brown as a leader, I really wanted to write about him as a follower and a follower of black activism. And so that's how the book sort of had its genesis. And my advisor, Eric Foner, who's so great, he was like, yes, Kelly, you have to write about violence. Violence is hot. (laughs) Violence is is all the rage. This is a story that needs to be told. Um, And mostly I wanted to shift the narrative. I think we think of the abolitionist movement as like, this moral suasionist, nonviolent group that was sort of like turn the other cheek and don't return violence for violence. And I was like, yes, white abolitionists were pushing that, but black abolitionists never pushed that. They were always like, I mean, sure, fine. If if it'll get you to ally with us, sure. But for the most part, they believed that because slavery was started with violence and sustained with violence, it only made sense that it would be overthrown with violence. And so they really shift the entire field, um, the entire way that the Civil War was talked about. They predict the Civil War. They're doing sort of dress rehearsals before the war breaks out, preparing men, you know, for battle, um, training men in the martial arts so that they can be ready uh, when this great war happens. And um, my book is basically saying, you know, they're not wrong. (laughs) Right. Well, you talk about, like I said in your book, you talk about the black abolish, uh, abolitionists taking up arms to defend themselves. What Was that the inspiration for the cover of the book? Oh, so the cover of the book, man. <laughs> so I had a friend who, um, Deidre Cooperall, and she's, she's made a fantastic book called um, Medical Bondage. And on the cover of her book, 
it's just a speculum. And it is about, you know, the history of the field of gynecology and how black women were experimented on. And I remember when I saw her cover, I was stunned because I was like, whoa, it's just a speculum. That's it. That is, that is gripping. And so I said, I want something on my cover that is gripping, that is arresting. <laughs> and I said, you know what? I think I just want a gun. I think I just want a pistol because that was the number one tool that black abolitionists used uh, as a way to sort of force the freedom. And so, you know, I talked to the editor and the publisher and they were like, oh, well, we have a couple of different, you know, rifles we could use because they called um, some of these rifles, they called Beecher rifles or, or Bibles as they were because they would pack rifles in book boxes that were labeled Bibles and then you opened up the crate and it would be rifles in the, um, in the, in the crate. And so we thought about that, but a rifle didn't look, it, it didn't, um, cover very well a pistol a smaller pistol was something that someone might have on their person their body individually you could also conceal it um and that revolver that's on the cover is one of the most widely used revolvers of all of the 19th century by the time of the civil war i think over 250,000 copies of this pistol had been made and so it made sense to use it because i was like oh this is something that any black leader or activist or abolitionist would have used. And so Albion is my editor. He was hesitant. He was like, I don't know, Kelly. <laughs> this is kind of forceful. And I was like, but that's the whole point. That's the whole point is to have a book that is forceful and arresting. So at the very least, you stop and say, hmm, what's this all about? That's that's what I wanted. I didn't want someone to look at the cover and just sort of keep moving. You know, I wanted them to look at it and want to open up the book. And so uh, so thankfully, I got support. And this is why it's so important that people who are writing really hard histories have support and have like uh, publicity, you know, that really sort of helms them in. Because I think if you don't have someone that is showing that like this work is nuanced, this work is complicated, this work is worthy of discussion, then it can go sideways very quickly. Um, but I had a lot of great support and the, the book has done really well. I'm very proud of Force and Freedom. Really, really proud. Congratulations. And now the career tip of the day, developing networking skills. Always keep copies of your resume and networking cards on hand. You'll never know who you're going to meet and where. Remember that every word counts no matter where you are. Choose your words wisely because recruiters listen to everything that you say. You've been listening to Career Talk, and I would like to thank my guest, historian, educator, speaker, and the author of the book, Force and Freedom, Black Abolitionists and the Politics of Violence, Dr. Kelly Carter-Jackson, for being on the show. Until Thank next time. Thank you so much. My oh, pleasure. You're welcome. Until next time, stay positive And remember, success does not come to you. You go to it. You've been listening to Career Talk, a monthly program featuring information on career and academic planning, sponsored by the Rowan University Office of Career Advancement. Tune in on the first Saturday of every month at 9 a.m. for another edition of Career Talk, only on Rowan Radio 89.7 WGLS-FM.